Well, we are going to jump right into the message. We have been in a series entitled uh, Foundations, or another subset of that would be Valley Brick 101. It's kind of a membership class um, for those who are new. It's also a review, because there's kind of new material involved in this, uh, for those who've been at Valley Brick for a while. But we have been going through uh, the basics of what we believe the Bible teaches um, here at this church. Okay, So we've, we've done things like, what is the gospel? Not only what is the gospel, but um, kind of what is our philosophy of how virtually every lesson can tie into the gospel. Uh, we talked about justification by faith alone, kind of the foundational doctrine that everything is built upon. Uh, we did a sermon on baptism, by the way. Uh, if you haven't been baptized as a believer, let me know. I'd love to talk to you about that. Now, today is Communion Sunday, so guess what we're going to talk about? Baptism again. No, we're going to talk about communion, okay? Now, um, ironically, the most detailed information we have in the Bible about how the early church practiced communion or the Lord's Supper comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but Paul is writing to the Corinthians to give them a blistering rebuke for how they were doing it wrong. So the most information we have, and by the way, this is true of a lot of Scripture, the reason we have certain doctrines defined in Scripture is because Paul is correcting some abuse of practice or doctrine. So that's what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 11. So here's how we're going to do it. We're going to work our way through that section of 1 Corinthians 11 uh, in more of an expository form where we'll we'll make comments uh, as as we go, Uh, but we'll get the big picture of what communion is, how it was practiced, how it should be practiced, how it shouldn't be practiced. So um, here we go. 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, starting in verse 17, Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Wow. Imagine an apostle writing to Valleybrook and saying, "Um, You know when you guys get together to worship? I'd rather you didn't do it, because it's for the worse, not for the better. Wow, what a rebuke. Well, what was going on? Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now, we know already from chapter 1 through 3 that there were factions in the Corinthian church, and they were grouping around personality. Some were saying, well, I like I like Peter as a teacher. I like Apollos as a teacher. I like Paul as a teacher. Then there were those who were dividing uh, over certain doctrinal issues. Then there were those who were uh, endorsing of certain sexual sin and others who were against certain sexual sin. Uh, and then there, were the, there was the whole weaker brother, stronger brother thing where some would eat meat sacrificed to idols and others wouldn't. And there were all these divisions and judgments going on amongst the Corinthians. And Paul's going to put his foot down right now and he's going to say, enough. And the place he's going to do it 
is in addressing communion. Okay? Now, look at this. This is an interesting comment. Verse 19, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Isn't that interesting? There must be factions. Now, his overall point is this. Love and harmony should characterize the church of Jesus Christ. But God sometimes sovereignly permits there to be controversies and factions to highlight what is true and who is right and what is false and who is wrong. You know, uh, when it comes to controversy, Jesus was always in the midst of it. Paul was always in the midst of it, and that's why most of his letters were written to straighten out controversy. Augustine was always in the midst of it. Luther was in the midst of it. Calvin was in the midst of it. Edwards was in the midst of it. Spurgeon was in the midst of it. They were all in the midst of controversy. But they never went looking for it. It always came looking for them. But God has used, you know, the the history of church history is that of theological controversies arising and then it being addressed biblically. So Paul's point here is this is wrong, but God allows it to bring about good, the defining of of truth and the pointing out of error. Now, having pointed out God's sovereignty in this whole thing, though, Paul has zero tolerance for the kind of petty, trite, sinful divisions and judgments that were going on amongst the Corinthians. He's saying, grow up. The kind of things that you are allowing to fracture the body of Christ is ridiculous. And he, you know, in essence, comes out and says, shame on you, grow up, be adults. Okay? So here's what he, what he goes on to say. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Interesting phrase. You're going through the motions of the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper. See, some people... And I would say even today, maybe more especially today, some people have a magical view of sacraments. As long as we go through the motions, you get some kind of special grace from God. This verse should destroy sacramentalism. You know, sacramentalism, in my mind, is like witchcraft. You cast the spell... You perform the, uh, you do the incantation, you put the eye of Newton in the pot and you mix it up, you, some smoke goes up and boom, the spirits have to do what, what you've called them to do because you've gone through the ritual. That's how some people look at sacraments. And Paul says, you're going through the motions here, but it's not even the Lord's Supper. Okay. In fact, in verse 17 again, he says it would be better for you not to even meet. Now, here's the application. Just showing up to church or to Bible study or to food pantry or to what, you, you name it, just showing up and going through the motions of singing or serving 
or taking communion is not fooling God. It's not giving you magical grace, and God would rather have us not go through the motions. In other words, you need to show up all in with your heart and your mind focused on the Lord, not just going through the ritual. Now, what was the real heart of the problem? Verse 21, For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Wow. <laughs> so, the Lord's Supper in the early church, in essence, was this. When they gathered on the Lord's Day, you know, you talk about high church. Some of you are like, oh, I believe we need to get back to the early church where there was a high church and liturgy. No, they showed up with potluck. If you read 1 Corinthians 14, somebody would go, I got a prophecy. I got an interpretation. I'd like to sing a solo. I'd like to. It was very low church. Lower than singing around the campfire. Right? And part of it was potluck. Everybody brought something to eat. The problem is, some people were just eating their own pots. So the, the communion was was part, okay, the Lord's Supper, was part of a larger potluck meal. And Paul is addressing that larger meal. Some people are showing up with a big basket of food and eating it amongst themselves and their friends. And then there were poorer people in the church who didn't have food and they were starving. Some... We're doubling down on the communion wine. By the way, I, I think this answers the question, did they use grape juice or wine? I, I, mean, I, I talked to guys who were like, it was, in the early church it was 72 parts water and one grape. They were, what, they were drinking a lot of that to get drunk. Okay, So there was uh, drunkenness. There was, uh, you know, I, I, I picture it, um, like junior high lunchroom. We're, we're going to eat with our group. Don't go over there. We don't like those people. They don't, they don't do things the way we do things. They're not as spiritual as us. Right? And, and Paul's writing them saying, what is wrong with you? You're going through the motions, but what communion symbolizes, Jesus giving his life and, and his his blood to bring a new family of God together. And the meal is not just remembering the cross. It is celebrating love and unity. You might have the cross part down, but the love and unity part, you're totally missing that. So, verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? You know, the, the purpose of the potluck meal was not to eat. Now, it, it, it was. It, they actually, I mean, it was part of, uh, it was lunch, okay? But the purpose was really greater than that. It wasn't lunch, it was love. In fact, he says, if your hunger becomes such an issue that you're ignoring other people, 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Eat before you come. You're turning it into pig out time, when in reality it's supposed to be love time. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Despise the church of God. Now, um, again, because of the divisions and because of what's going on earlier, Paul is basically saying your junior high kids who bicker over trivia, and you're missing the bigger point of love and unity. Now, that's why uh, before communion, I usually say, uh, let's examine ourselves. You're welcome to come and participate in the Lord's Supper. There are three things, though, that you need to take very seriously. One, communion is for believers. If, If you are not uh, yet a believer, we are, we are thrilled that you're here. We want you here. Just pass the plates by, though, because this is only for believers. So number one, that you're a believer. Number two, that you have a repentant heart. In other words, when the Lord brings sin to your mind, or you know you're living in sin, the Lord's Supper is a point in time where you are to repent of that sin. Don't take the elements with every intention of going on living in that sin. Then the third thing we talk about is that it's your desire to live in harmony in your own family and amongst your brothers and sisters. Jesus is saying you are not allowed to despise your brother and sister whom I died for. You're not to hold on to bitterness for something that happened 12 years ago or 12 months ago or 12 days ago. You're not to hold grudges. Gossip is sin. You know, some people take communion and on the way home in the car, they talk about the person they smiled to and shook their hand, yet they stab them in the back on the way home. That's not allowed. That's not allowed in the church of God for whom Jesus died. When you take communion, every time you take communion, in essence, you are saying to God, thank you for dying for me. I am a sinner. I am a wretch but I confess my sin. I thank you for the cross, and this is true of me, where Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Lord, I'm going to take the elements, and I have let go of bitterness. I've let go of gossip. I'm not holding grudges. I am good with the church or you're mocking the body and blood of Christ. You know, I know it's possible for Christians to hold on to petty little grudges and grievances for years. I remember up in Wisconsin, after 10 years of being there, a lady wanted to have an appointment with myself and my wife. 
And she said, I've been holding on to grudges and bitterness for you. Well, what is it? Some little petty thing that just didn't matter. Yet Paul would say, when I was a child, I acted like a child. That's a childish thing. Let it go. Let me show you another verse. Now, now sometimes when people hear this, they go, oh, I'm going to pull out the directory and go through every grievance I have and, and go make an appointment. And You know what? The, you may need to do that, but there's another thing here called bearing. Paul says, therefore, this is Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, therefore, uh, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. What is that? It means we're big boys and girls, and we realize we're going to have differences of opinions on different things. And di- here's the other thing. Different personalities. And sometimes we're going to rub one another the wrong way. And rather than letting that affect us, we go, oh, well, love covers a multitude of sins. Unless you want to be the full-time person, please don't be the full-time person who pulls out the directory and goes around and, and has to confront everybody. Maybe the problem is you. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a, a heart of, of criticalness or bitterness that you just need to... You need to say, Lord, root that out of my heart. I'm the problem. Okay. So Paul goes on, and he says this. Now, um, that's, that's his first slap in the face. You're, you're, you have pettiness and divisions, and, and even if, when people walk into the room and they look at communion, they can see divisiveness in the church. That is not the picture that we want. We want a picture of love and unity and sharing our meal together. Okay? Um, and, and by the way, there are, there are those who um, uh, can make petty things a big issue. I think there's, there's a thing called grace where you just have to say, hmm, they kind of offended me, but did they mean to? I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they... Di- you know, sometimes my, somebody will say to my wife, um, oh, I hope I didn't... Offend you by the, and she'll go, you got to work a lot harder to offend me. Right? Because she's better at this than I am. Her assumption is people make mistakes. People aren't out to get her. My assumption is everybody's out to get me. No. Um, (laughs) Let's not be so sensitive. Let's give people grace. Let's let it go. Um, Now, Paul goes on, he says this, For I received from the Lord 
what I also delivered to you. Now he's going to tell you about communion. Now I find this interesting. He says, for I received from the Lord. I would have assumed that Paul, who didn't become a believer until long after Jesus had ascended into heaven, I would think that he would have learned about the words of the Last Supper from the other apostles who were there. Peter was there, and John was there, and Matthew was there. I would think Paul would have received his knowledge of what happened on the night of the Lord's Supper from the other apostles. Guess where he got his information? I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He got this directly from Jesus. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, um, volumes of ink and volumes of blood has been spilled in trying to properly interpret this word, is. As a famous president once said, it depends what is means. What does is mean? Does it mean this piece of bread and this cup now is, now has become my literal body and blood? Or does it mean this bread and this cup represents my body and blood? Remember uh, Schoolhouse Rock, the difference between a simile and a metaphor? A simile uses like or as. Now that would, have been, that would have been much easier if Jesus says this is like my body. But he uses a metaphor. This is. But with the metaphor, now you have to determine, is he speaking metaphorically or literally? Okay. Now let me give you the three views uh, throughout church history. The Roman Catholic view is this. The communion elements literally change into the actual body and blood of Christ and are worthy of worship because it's Jesus. It's literally Jesus' body and literally his blood. He's in the room. You can bow down and worship it. You should. Okay. Communion is a time when Christ is said to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. That's why it's, it's not just a remembering. It's a propitiatory sacrifice. Which is why when people go, well, you know, whether I go to the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church or the Baptist or whatever, it's all the same. Really? It's the same whether we believe that we're remembering what Jesus did or we're actually participating in a propitiatory sacrifice that covers our sins. I think there's a huge difference there. Right? Um, Now, Luther... On the other hand, he said Christ is not sacrificed during communion, and that's the huge thing. That's the, for me, that's the most important thing, that Christ's sacrifice was once for all. It was done. Okay? So Luther said, let's get that straight. But he went on to say that Christ's body and blood is present in, with, and under the elements. So they don't turn into the body and blood of Jesus, but Christ is present in, with, and under 
the elements. So when Jesus said, this is my body, his body was there. Okay. Now, this is what we hold to, the symbolic view. The communion elements represent the body and blood of Jesus. In other words, we take uh, the word is metaphorically. Let me give you five reasons not to take it literally. All right? Reason number one, Jesus spoke in figurative language quite often. He said, I am the vine, you're the branches. I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. He didn't use a simile. He didn't say, I am like a light or I am like bread. He said, I am. But we don't take that literally. Do you think he turned into a big loaf of bread? You know? Um, no, he, he, uh, he's, we know he's speaking metaphorically. Now, this doesn't prove that he's speaking metaphorically when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. It just opens up um, the range of meaning and points out that this is a type of genre Jesus spoke in. He spoke in metaphorical language all the time. Right? Number two, Christ was physically present at the first communion service. So the only way the disciples could have understood the words would have been figuratively. To take the Catholic or Lutheran view, you have to think that when Jesus held out the bread and said, this is my body, the apostles understood that that actually became part of his body. Now, when the guy's body is standing in front of you and he says, this is my body, guess what? Everybody in the room says, oh, he's, ta he's talking metaphorically, not literally. Okay, number three. The Jewish apostles would have objected to drinking literal blood. They took their food laws very seriously. And here's a law in Leviticus. Any Israelite or any alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. Do you remember when Peter in Acts, he's up on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house? Um... And God gives him a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven full of unclean animals. And he says, eat. What does Peter do? He goes to town and eat. No, he argues with God. Those are unclean animals. I, would, I have never eaten non-kosher food. So God does it a second time and he argues again. Finally, it takes three times and Peter goes, oh, you're changing some things. Not the moral law, but the ceremonial law to make a point that it's okay to go to the Gentiles. But Peter didn't give in to changing the food laws without a fight. But we're to believe that at the Last Supper, they literally thought that was Jesus' literal blood and didn't argue, didn't, they just drank it. Okay? Number four, Jesus refers to the wine as fruit of the vine, not his blood, even after he calls it his blood. So in Matthew, then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. Right here at this point, at least with transubstantiation, it is no longer fruit of the vine. It's, it's now his blood. The blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. Oh, it's, I guess it changed back. From now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Case closed. It's not his blood. Seals it for me. Okay, number four. Number uh, that's four. Number five would be this. Satan wants us to place more importance upon the symbols than upon the reality. You know, um, 
in the early church, there were those who wanted to hold on to the, the Jewish festivals and the new moon ceremonies and everything that pointed to Christ. And Paul says this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. By the way, that's why I'm non-Sabbatarian right there. He includes Sabbath observance in the things that you're not to judge one another over. Okay? If, if you want to keep the Sabbath, that is fine. I am all for, for you, that being your, your sacrifice of, of worship, that's fine. Just don't impose it on me. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, the problem is not that they were participating in these things. The problem is these things had become more important than Christ himself. Now, there are symbols and religious festivals and things before the cross that point to Christ. And now we are given symbols and sacraments that point to Christ after the cross. In either case, you can get so caught up in the symbols that you miss the reality. I always like to give the illustration of the the husband who goes off to war. And the wife and the children have a picture of him there on the wall. And every day they kiss the picture. And then one day he bursts through the door and he says, Honey, I'm home! And they run past him and they kiss the picture. The reality is here and you're stuck in the picture? Let's not get so caught up in the picture that we miss the reality to which it points. He goes on, he says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, covenants were always ratified with blood. Blood was spilled. You know the Mosaic covenant? When that was made... Moses took blood and threw it on the people. Then, as part of the Mosaic Covenant, animals, thousands of animals were sacrificed. Now, when Jesus comes, He says, this cup, which represents My blood, I would say, is the blood. We need blood to ratify the covenant. And the next day, he shed his blood. That's the blood of the covenant. And by the way, what about all those goats and rams that were sacrificed? Hebrews 10.4 says, For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those were symbolic. They didn't really do it. They pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And then, now here's a question. Does Christ, is he perpetually on the cross? Does he perpetually need to be sacrificed in every communion service? Look at what Hebrews 10.12 says. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He is seated. It's done. It's finished. It's not repeated. So what do we do when we gather? He says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance. Of me. We are remembering what he did once and for all. Okay. Verse 26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, interesting word, proclaim. That word is translated in, in many cases as preach. Okay. 
most of the time it's being used uh, of talking about preachers in the Bible who are preaching evangelistically. They're preaching the gospel. This is interesting. I think this is saying that communion is a time of proclaiming Christ to both believer and unbeliever. You know, the the impression you get from many Christians is that communion or the communion service should be like segmented off only for believers. Now, only believers should participate in taking the elements. But we read in the Corinthian church that there were unbelievers who visited the church all the time. Rather than saying, hey, could you guys go outside? You know, this is kind of a private ceremony. Paul's saying, what a great way to proclaim the gospel. Room full of believers and unbelievers. And it forces a decision. If you are a believer, participate. If you're not, please, we're glad you're here, but don't participate. I mean, you know, you can sit through a year of sermons and just say, I'm not going to make a decision. I'm... But what happens when they hand you that plate and you either have to take it or not? That forces you to decide. So, so um, I, I don't think we should hide the communion service to a Thursday evening at 9 p.m. so nobody can. Let's celebrate. Let's proclaim the gospel to believer and unbeliever. Now, you better not take it, though, if you're not doing it the right way. So here we go. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, here's where people go, well, what's a a worthy manner and what's an unworthy manner? Now, some people think, oh, well, a, uh, a worthy manner is only the super spiritual, only the virtually sinless can participate. Nope, nope, nope. It's a requirement that you be a sinner to participate. No perfect people are allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Why would you need it? Okay, requirement that you're a sinner. So what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? Well, there's a way to partake of communion that is unworthy of the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us. How, how, how would we take communion in an unworthy manner? Well, we've already talked about some things. Being a gossip, busybody, judgmental, divisions, loveless in the church. But you go through the motions. That's taking it in an unworthy manner. It would also be untaking it in an, uh, taking it in an unworthy manner to not repent. To say, well, yeah, I know we got communion and I wouldn't look real good if I didn't take some. Um, but I'm going to go home and look at that pornography. I'm going to go home and continue to treat my wife in an unloving manner. 
I'm going to go home and continue my ungodly business practices. I'm going to go home and live like a hypocrite, but I don't want anybody to think I'm not, so I'm, that's an unworthy man. Again, that's not, you have to be sinless. Sinners come to the table. But when he brings to mind sin, you say, I'm repenting of that sin. Now, what Paul is saying is, when you go through the motions, you're guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. You are heaping condemnation on yourself. Which is why he says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, um, here are some people say, oh, discerning the body. See, that proves that when you take communion, you have to discern that it has turned into his body. All right, that's the, the Catholic Lutheran view. All right. Well, there are other ways to interpret that. To discern the body would be to look at the elements and discern that it reminds us of the cross. Many interpreters... Take it this way. The fact that the, the, the cup uh, is mentioned here in verse 28, but not in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, so now, now it's the body but not the blood, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Like Gordon Fee in his commentary, he says the body now, while it was referring to the body of Jesus, chapter 11, is a transition chapter into chapter 12, which talks about the body of Christ, the church. In other words, before you eat, you need to think through, am I in harmony with the rest of the church? Okay. Now, um, I, I am not 100% sure whether it's referring to are you thinking of the church or are you thinking of the broken body of Jesus? Maybe you ought to do both. Wouldn't be wrong. Okay. But now, here's the punch to the gut. You ready? That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Wow. God killed some Corinthians for the way they went through the motions at communion. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. All right? so, so examine yourself. Repent of your sin. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Um, now, what I've learned over time is there are some great sermon illustrations out there, and then if you do a little research, you find out, ah, they weren't really true. They were great, but they weren't true. Okay. I listened to a sermon by uh, D.A. Carson. I always refer to him as the smartest man on the planet. Um, he's, a, he's like written and edited all these academic books, and I had him for a class at, at Trinity when I was in seminary. So he, he was preaching on communion, and he told a story 
about a man who mentored him, a pastor who mentored him, and he referred to him as having a little church. This man had a little church, and he said, out in the bush. So I don't know if this man was from Australia or now D.A. Carson's from Canada. So do they refer to the bush in Canada? I don't, I don't know. But it was a, uh, a man who pastored a little community church in a little town back in the 1930s. The church of about 200 people. And the church was filled with factions and divisions and sexual sin. And this pastor, he was single at the time, came in. He was young, he was afraid, and he would preach and nobody would repent. And it was just a mess. So you know what he did? He started going into his study and for three months he fell on his face and wept and said, Lord, take me out. Send in a Paul. Send in a Spurgeon. But I can't do this. And then he started praying, Lord, either take me out or you clean it up. The next three months, he did 34 funerals in that church of under 200. The next year, he baptized 200 people. Paul ends with this. Now, this is... (laughs) You go, wow, he he plums the depths of, of... the Lord's Supper and talks about the new covenant and the we, was it transubstantiation and this is the, you know in depth stuff about the Lord's Supper. But that's all just background to get to this one point, which is this. So, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's his point. Wait for one another when you eat. Be nice. Now, we got a lot of theology about the Lord's Supper, but his point is, um, you say more about your Christianity by the way you eat with other people than a lot of theology. Wait. Okay. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home. Or grab some Panera, whatever. So that when you come together, it will not be for. So I want to invite us to partake of the Lord's Supper, and maybe we will never partake of it the same again in light of really understanding what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11. By the way, let me say this. Um, Our family, when we know Communion Sunday is coming, we don't want to be hypocrites, so we... Sometimes we do this the night before. Sometimes we do it on the way in the car. Sometimes we do it in the front row. We go, are we good? Is there anything we've got to work out? Right. Um, you know, when it comes to marriage and family issues, there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, there's great counseling, and there's, hey, Gary Chapman and five love languages, and there's this seminar and that seminar. You know, I think the Lord has given us a great marriage accountability thing called Communion, where he says, whenever you partake, 
You have to do some self-examination. And the great thing is, when you want to love the Lord more than you want to win your argument with your spouse or your kids, you're going to have a great family. But you've got to take the Lord's Supper seriously. It could revolutionize your world. One, we want you to participate, but you need to be a believer. I'm all in with Jesus. Number two, whatever sin you've been hanging on to, what the Lord is saying is, I died on the cross to pay for that. You are covered, but you've got to turn from it. And three, it's your desire to live in harmony with your brothers and sisters and your wife and your kids. At least that's your intention that you desire. Right? Those who are helping out, if you will come forward, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, also, he took. Uh, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." 